This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. And this is The Beirut Banyan. This episode's unique. Uh, I recorded this back in November. This is just weeks into the protests, and I was pretty much in and out of Martyrs Square. And I was staying in Marim Khayil, and I would pretty much walk uh, straight into Jemaisi, uh through Martyrs Square into downtown. And then I would walk home. Uh, And that kind of back and forth, I mean, you see a lot of your friends and you see a lot of people, familiar faces from different aspects of your life. And during the protests, mostly people going into the protests and coming out. And it was very fluid. It was just in and out. And... I would run into people that I interviewed for the podcast or I would run into someone that I would want to speak to and kind of became a became the perfect route to think about different voices and gauge different minds on different subjects and Urbanista just sort of midway through Jemaisi um, I ended up doing interviews there. The managing partner of Urbanista, uh, Hussam Aid, I actually did an interview with him and uh, he gave me sort of the green light to let me sit down in Urbanista when needed and record new episodes. And this was just basically time management where somebody could not come over to Madam Khayr and record where I was staying or I was not able to meet them in different neighborhoods. Um, and oftentimes road closings and just sort of things were a bit shaky. So Urbanista became a strategic meeting point. Of course, many people were meeting in Urbanista. And in the episode I did with Hussein Aid, uh, we talk about sort of the cafe culture and how politics fed in. And people were discussing, uh, in a way, every subject possible, in particular the initial weeks, uh, everything was on the table. So I would bring my portable microphone, sit down in Urbanista, and uh, would basically do interviews there whenever whenever needed. And coming out of an interview, sort of on my way home, I ran into someone that I I really wanted to talk to. And... It was because of a conversation we had in private, I think maybe days into the protests. And there's a caveat here. That conversation uh, was, I think, uh, alcohol-induced. 
I think it was uh, several shots into the conversation. Um, it was a very, very friendly conversation, but there was an emotional aspect to it. And I, uh, I really enjoyed the words that I was hearing. I was hoping that this would not sort of uh, stay in the bar, that this could be taken out uh, into a, uh, a more sober, more uh, perhaps slightly more sophisticated uh, discussion later. But um, it stayed in a bar. And when I ran into the guest for the uh, episode today, uh, I asked him if he'd be willing to sit down with me for a few minutes and just talk things out. And he initially said yes, but there was a condition, which was basically that we may not be able to release it right away. And for the right reasons. Uh, Asr Khatteb uh, was a reporter for the Washington Post. Uh, he's a previous reporter for the Financial Times. And for many reasons, he just couldn't lend his name to the subject that we discussed at that time. Uh, he kind of opens up his personal story and how that kind of feeds into the protests. And we recorded on that condition that hopefully one day when, uh, when things are different, uh, we could share the conversation itself. And Asif gave me the green light to release it. He's currently in Paris. Uh, he left Beirut. And we get into this as well. At sort of his tricky situation in Beirut prior to his departure. And uh, his passion for what he saw on the streets of Beirut. And his own life. And how, in a way, both kind of converged in October 2019. It's a very friendly, sweet conversation about a subject that I thought was very touching and needed to be heard. And I'm just going to say two more things before getting into the conversation. The first is that this is Urbanista, and I learned my lesson. I mean, this was really out of necessity more than anything, but uh, don't do episodes in a cafe because there is a lot of background noise, so I apologize for that. You're going to hear sort of background chatter. You're going to hear cups clinking. And basically, there is some background noise. So I apologize for that. Uh, the second thing is Asir is a gentleman. And I'm very, very happy that he said yes to this story. And I was worried that it would be buried for a long time. And it would take sort of the, the meaning for the moment would sort of fade over time. So... He agreed that we could sort of, we could let it out and let it uh, be shared. Keep in mind, these are reflections of November 2019. So there's no coronavirus. Uh, the lira has not sort of collapsed at this point. Um, there's a lot of euphoria. There's a lot of hope. And it's a, it's a magical moment in Beirut. So these last six months, things have taken a different turn uh, and uh, things are probably um, far more painful today. The experience of being in Beirut right now and having to wither the economic collapse at this point compared to six months ago, there is a, a stark difference. So 
we'll keep that just in, in the background, that uh, this is a conversation at a different point. But it's an equally important point. And I think a lot of the passion and perhaps some of the optimism, it's still resonating among protesters, among people determined to change Lebanon for the better. So with that said, this is episode 150. And the episode's name, uh, it fits the conversation perfectly. It's something that Hasser shares. He says, home more now than ever. We've known each other for a good 18 months. And I met you at a Financial Times correspondence home for a dinner. And we kind of became friends as a result of that meeting, although we don't know each other that well. And uh, I, I know that you're a correspondent. I know that you're a reporter. I know that you cover Lebanon and the region. But we've never talked about your personal emotions, which maybe is a good thing because we had no reason to. But a brief conversation a few nights ago, uh, you said something that made me, in a way, appreciate Lebanon more. And this is coming from somebody who's not Lebanese, somebody who's only lived here two and a half years, resonated with me. So I'm going to focus in on that moment. And I don't want to quote you to you, but this is what I remember from that, from that moment. You said that you truly felt comfortable for the first time. And you were describing you walking among protesters, observing the protests. You felt that no one was judging you. And if you could just elaborate on that, and what, exactly what you meant by that, and we can go back in time and your general relationship to Lebanon. But that particular moment, what did you mean by that? Places where we work, the, the areas we cover, whether the areas of interest of our um, companies, the companies that we work for, or the geographic areas where we're based, are also the places where we live in, in that there were our social life, there were our, we, we live and have challenges and have friends and have um, problems and have hurdles and Lebanon is one of these places. I've been living here, as you mentioned uh, correctly, two and a half years and um, I am Syrian and Syrians in Lebanon have a special uh, kind of, you know, relation, love-hate relation with the country, if I may say, because... Um, and it tilts more in one direction depending on the circumstances. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And ever since the influx of hundreds of thousands of Syrian refugees after the outbreak of the Syrian civil war in 2011, um, these uh, challenges that this, the relationship between the Syrians and the Lebanese uh, face uh, have been exacerbated a little bit because of the extra pressure that's been added in the country that has already been struggling uh, the scapegoating of Syrian refugees by Lebanon's politicians and um, some of the already existing existing sensitivities between the two people because of the shared history, which is long and complicated. Uh, but, And I am one of those people who have struggled here. I, I face certain challenges as a Syrian who cannot go back to his country, as a Syrian who is not able to go to many places due to the circumstances, despite my being a journalist. Right. Um, and many times I did not feel welcome. I did not feel welcome um, legally. Can I ask you, is that through your profession or is that just simply on a societal level? Uh, no, this is, uh, this is 
or is it both? Is it, it's not professional, but mainly because I've been working all this time for, for, for international companies. Mm -hmm. uh, I did not work for a Lebanese company, for example, and right. I think it was, it's been more about, you know, me personally, about my legal challenges, you know, getting right. uh, anything done, getting a residency permit, getting a work permit, and it's... Uh, extra hard if not impossible for Syrians yeah. to access certain uh, documentation that they require that people from other nationalities are able to require quite easily um, perhaps in, not in a very small way I remember our hesitation with you joining the tour we were concerned that this would maybe get you in trouble True. and I kind of insisted on it and you I'm glad you came but so, so it's that kind of day-to-day Problem True. Of just moving around True. the country without. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And that's not just me. And I have to say here that I am one of the extremely privileged Syrians who live here because, mm. first of all, we said that I work for a foreign company, which means I do not face the um, stigma from employers who have yeah. been hiring Syrians here and not paying them well. And if they're their sponsors, they've been treating them bad. It's kind of a modern slavery because they have authority over the residency and work permits and all of this. And I don't, don't suffer uh, from that. Mm. And also socially, uh, thanks to journalism, you, you run in, in certain circles and you, you sort of are protected in a certain way, yeah. uh, more than uh, others who have been less privileged. Uh, uh, but In a way, you live maybe the expat lifestyle yes, without being yes. a traditional expat. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, this, the ways that Syrians uh, use to cope with, uh, with living in Lebanon, many of them change their accents, for example, to sound more Lebanese. Uh, many of them try to avoid going to certain areas. Like you said, when I, when I sort of asked you about every stop that we're going to make on your tour before yeah. going on it. And um, I uh, always felt, you know, whenever I leave my home in Lebanon, I'm worried. I'm worried there's going to be a checkpoint. I'm worried that I'm going to be asked to show documentation or an ID and be asked certain questions about my life here as a Syrian and as a journalist. Um, and I remember on the third day of the revolution, um, uh, I was down in, in between Martyr Square and Riyad al-Salah. And it was the first day that was... Um, this was the initial giant protest yes, on Sunday, yes. I believe. And uh, it was uh, Saturday. Saturday. And okay. th Thursday yeah. and Friday were a bit violent, the tear yes. gas and the rubber bullets and yeah. the arrests. I think 300 people were arrested yeah. on Friday. Yeah. Saturday was more peaceful. Everyone was released and yes. uh, people were there with their children. They were there with their pets and everyone yeah. was, was there. Everyone has this sort of... Um, jovial air around them because yeah. they're very proud of what's being done, what they're witnessing and you I remember were there reporting or and I was there reporting. Okay, yeah. Um my mom calls me when I'm there and, and I pick up and she says, Where are you? And I say, I'm in Riyadh Sulah Square where the demonstration's happening and she said, Oh well I'm seeing Riyadh Sulah live. Sorry to interrupt you, your mom is in Syria. She's in Syria, okay. yes. And uh, she asks me, uh, aren't you aren't you worried? that you were a Syrian and you were there, what if something happens to you? Aren't you scared? And I said, this is actually the first time when I do not feel worried being in a public space or doing my work uh, on field in Lebanon because I can see people uh, chanting, yes, they were chanting, uh, you know, things against um, the regime, politicians, uh, yeah. capitalism, uh, the, the authority of banks, but they were also chanting pro-Palestinian and Syrian refugee yeah. uh, things. They were, they were sort of expressing uh, 
the, the uh, needs and the challenges that people from marginalized communities were facing in Lebanon. And I, I On said, even a broader scale, you could even argue that women being the front and center kind of perhaps emboldened all types of disenfranchised groups. And there's a range here to be on the streets, to be visible, and this includes absolutely the Syrian refugee or any refugee for that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was down there, I was talking to people, and I wasn't one of the people who opted to change their accents. I still have my Syrian accent, and it's quite, uh, you know, um, detectable for a, for a Lebanese. And uh, no one seemed to have any additional, um, you know, any follow-up questions regarding my accent, which usually happens whenever I talk to someone here to interview them. Yeah. Um, they, you can sense, even sometimes they express it, and sometimes you can sense their tone changing on them being like reluctant to speak to you just because you're speaking a Syrian accent. Can I ask you, this is I, from a naive position, because I don't know the inner workings of how this works, whether it's translation or just traditional reporting. Are they concerned more that you're reporting for a Syrian outfit, or are they more, is it an individual? I don't think so. I think uh, to some it's... Um, it uh, sounds ridiculous that uh, a Syrian is calling them and introducing themselves as Washington Post correspondents because uh, yeah. I don't think they... So that comes up at the beginning. It's not like there's no hesitation that, oh, this is perhaps a, a media outlet that is... I don't think so because they can ask me to prove, uh, you right. know, I, right. I have means to prove uh, yeah. who yeah. I work for and the, the media I work for. But we have witnessed, I've always been working alongside people who are from... Uh, the UK or mm -hmm. the US or from Western countries, yeah. and uh, with their fantastic Arabic accents, <laughs> <laughs> or you know just English. And sure, some people sure. went welcome being welcome being talked to in English more yeah. than being talked to in Arabic. Right. And we have seen uh, how more friendly and welcoming some people, especially politicians, have been to my uh, Western colleagues speaking to them than me speaking to them. Right. Um, Despite being the same. Outlet, outlet they, exactly. So it is, an, it is an individualized yes, thing. Yes, yes. Okay. And I don't choose also to speak to them in Arabic. It doesn't make much sense to me if it's my native language and their native language. So, so it doesn't make sense to speak Arabic? To not speak Arabic. To not, not to speak, speak Arabic. Arabic. Okay, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, that's why I don't use English. Yes, right. Um, even though also many Syrians try to use English in order to sort of, uh, one, not pass as Syrians, but yeah. also satisfy some of the people who are more... You know, interested in people who speak foreign languages because sure. sometimes also they judge you not just on being Syrian, but they differentiate between one Syrian and another. And if you're a Syrian who speaks foreign languages and uh, works for a foreign company, then you're fine, which is also problematic. Sure. But sure. it's a privilege that that some people take, and it's sort of you know I, I benefit from this, and it's kept me safe so far. So, so, so that's even in terms of language, you notice that the response shifts whether you're speaking in Arabic dialect Syrian. Absolutely. Or speaking in English, and I hear a hint of a British accent. <laughs> yes. So I'm sure um, even then, does the response get a bit even more exaggerated? It's, it's, it's better, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I get better responses. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the thing is, uh, and, and this is this has been my struggle for the past two and a half years. How yeah. am I going to sort out my legal situation? How am I going to? And I, you know, most of my work is covering Syria, so this is, can be done from home. Uh, on my laptop via internet, phone calls. Right. Whenever I do a Lebanon thing, I'm stressed, I, I'm scared. I don't want to cause trouble with anyone because I am uh, vulnerable here. Uh, I'm not protected by uh, an embassy or by yeah. certain documentation. And uh, 
it's it's worrisome and uh, the only time the, the most time I've done field work in and yeah. the only time I felt safe was this past month uh, since the outbreak of the uprising so there quite interesting so covering the revolution has made you feel more at home yes and I think because that's that's a very unique circumstance where somebody in your position who feels uncomfortable covering anything Lebanese the most Lebanese moment the last two and a half years and now you feel you're here exactly I think it's do, do you think that that is an, an intended effort or is that just simply a that that is a natural outcome of what we're seeing on the streets that this is a like a, a cohesive way of bringing everyone on board or is it just simply a we don't care because that's not what we're fighting for at the moment I'm curious, like, what, what do you think, where this comes from? I think it's natural. I think natural. Uh, the, this uprising uh, happened for a reason, and the reasons people are expressing down the street, um, uh, uh, yes, they're mainly about, you know, the, the getting rid of the rulers that have right. divided the country and have siphoned off its resources yeah. uh, for the past decades and this is of course according to the people we talk to on the streets but it's also about other smaller things not small well, they're all valid challenges but yeah. Um, yeah. there are things that uh, interest everyone in Lebanon and and uh, you know uh, challenges that everyone here is facing and there are certain things that certain groups of people face more than others right. and uh, when we spoke about people supporting uh, Syrians and Palestinians and I know that these people have always existed we yes. know that the Lebanese are not inherently racist or bad or um, xenophobic but uh, unfortunately for the past decades it seems that uh, the state-led um, xenophobia or racism so you know uh, against Syrians against Palestinians against refugees in general and this is what people have also it been expressing allowed that kind of expression yes to yes and the focus yeah. and we know that uh, across the world really when uh, you know thousands of people say the good thing but when someone says the bad thing this gets amplified and it gets right. sort of you know it gets more focus if someone says something incredibly racist mm. it's going to have more resonance than uh, thousands of people saying something welcoming to refugees I'm curious the what you're identifying here, which is the most visible antagonism towards the Syrian refugee community, that those individuals have become, at times, a laughing stock here. They've been insulted on the streets. Uh, chants have emerged from those insults. Some of them are quite rhythmic. Uh, do, do you think that that plays into the story, that because those voices have been really sort of, they've taken a beating, do you think that that has allowed perhaps a more vocal tolerance of refugees? Yes, absolutely. Mm. And uh, I remember I was talking to someone on the fifth or sixth day of the of the uprisings, um, also in Beirut, and uh, I was I was talking to him about you know all the challenges that he's been facing, and he's been sharing what uh, what he wants, what he's fighting against. Yeah. And uh, he stops at some point and says, you know. Uh, we are also here to, for Syrians and for Palestinians, yeah. and he's Lebanese, of course. He tells you this. Yes, right? yes. Okay. And so you, just he comes out of. Yes, clearly he knows that you're Syrian. Yes, so he's, okay. he's uh, realized my, I'm yeah. Syrian from my accent, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Um, he looks at me and points at me and says, "And we say we're here for Syrians. We're here for refugees because refugees are welcome, and those who are um, 
racist against refugees are the ones that aren't welcome here. Yeah. Um, they feel like this divide that uh, exists, and it does exist, between the Syrians and the Lebanese, uh, in spite of the you know uh, mutual history and culture, um, they feel like it's been imposed on those people by politicians, by mm -hmm. rulers of, of uh, both countries. Mm -hmm. And uh, they want to change that. It's one of the things that they want to change, and it's not separate to them, to many of them, it's not separate from the bigger goals. They want to topple the establishment for financial reasons, to, for anti-corruption reasons, yeah. but the xenophobia and racism are also included in, in that package that they want to get uh, rid of. And this is part of the reason why I felt safe there. And that's why I, was, I told my mom this is, this is the safest that I've ever felt, and it was true. That's, that's quite fascinating. And I, I'm curious about your own relationship now as somebody who's, who's working from Lebanon and considers Lebanon home. Before we start now, more, now more than before. Now more than before. Watch us now get rid of you. <laughs> <laughs> I love you guys. <laughs> Go home. <laughs> I hope not. No. I hope not too. No. And uh, I think I'd be one of the first people there to get you out if, if I can. I'll, I'll do what I can to get you out. Um, your relationship to Lebanon prior to all this and I know this is a very subjective view, it's just your own instincts. And You mentioned before we started recording that you used to visit Lebanon as a child from Syria. True. And I think many people simply just visit. I, mean, I, I remember going to Syria. I remember flying into Syria to get to Lebanon during the Civil War. I mean, the, such a sizable number of people that have experienced both countries prior to this whole decade of, of violence in Syria. And of course, the refugees that live here today. Do you recall having these emotions and these views prior to reporting on Lebanon, or are these coming out of your profession? Meaning that you're you're seeing things in a different way because your job involves sort of analyzing and trying to get to the maybe the 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 politics of the situation plays a larger role because of your profession, or or. Did you always feel like this, that you were, un, in a sense, judged or unwelcome or treated differently, even as a younger mm. person mm. visiting Lebanon? Mm. I'm wondering, is that something that resonates because you're so invested in covering the region that you see it in ways maybe other people don't? And this is a very subjective opinion. I'm just trying to see where, because it's quite a bold statement to feel at home. True. Right? True shows that there's been a burden at stake. Was that burden there before you started living here and covering? Um, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, so much of a burden before moving here. It actually became a real burden and challenge after having moved here. And um, uh, it's a long story, but I did not choose to come uh, and live here. Right. Uh, I, I had to. I had yeah. to leave my country at some point, and I uh, flew to uh, Sudan, where I spent a few months, and then I also uh, needed to go somewhere else. And I only have a Syrian passport, yeah. and um, you know, it, 
for a country that's been uh, at civil war and has exported hundreds of thousands or even millions of refugees over the past few years, the Syrian passport doesn't take you to many places now. So I had to come here and uh, I, had, I didn't have any other options really. And I wanted to find work. I didn't come here you know, with a job offer waiting right. for me. So, so I came here and started looking. So you were a refugee but not from Syria? Sort of via Sudan. Yes, via Sudan. Yes, exactly. And um, I never registered as a refugee because um, Lebanon banned UNHCR from registering new refugees in 2015. Okay. uh, And I only arrived here 2017. Right. It wasn't a burden before. We always felt. uh, I used to come here since before the year 2015, which was the year when General Lebanese General Security imposed a new regulations on Syrians' entry and residency in in Lebanon. And uh, I I remember in 2016, 2017, prior to my leaving Syria, I really needed Lebanon because I was working um, in Damascus or out of Damascus as a journalist for various uh, international media organizations. I, at some point, had a full-time job as a correspondent for the Spanish news agency, mm-hmm. and I needed to come to Lebanon almost every month to get oh. my salary and to make phone calls to, you know, opposition areas, right. because that's not something you can do from Damascus, right. uh, especially when you live, you know, a few blocks away from the Ministry of Information. So you were covering so, the Syrian war from Lebanon at times, even though you were still based in days. Syria? The, for days yeah okay, a yeah, few yeah. days every every month or two okay and but but then it was every time i would come here despite the frequency of my visits it was difficult it was hard i, I, w- I would have to worry about it i would have to start asking well if i'm going to be let in or if i'm not going to be let in and i right. always managed to sort of go in i was never sort of stopped at the border or sent back which happens to syrians every day mm-hmm. um, and um, i i it did not feel as much of a challenge at the time because they used to give me a short-term visa which is still kind of attainable for Syrians until this right. very day. Three, four days visa is not a big problem. Right. Uh, when I came here and I had to struggle with long-term visas uh, is when it became a bigger challenge to me, especially right. as someone who cannot afford to be deported th- yes. to their country. Right. Um, and I, uh, t- to be honest, for the most part of the past two and a half years we did not do a lot of work in Lebanon because prior to the uh, eruption of the uprisings on October 17 it was mostly about Syria Syria and it was hard to get the international media uh, to publish about Lebanon unless something major was happening so in the past two and a half years I started working for the FT right after the first time that Prime Minister Hariri announced his resignation from Saudi Arabia and then he revoked it uh, so there was some reporting on Lebanon right. happening at the time. Yeah, yeah. I didn't get to do that. I started only afterwards, okay. and we so there was got a, to there do was, some Lebanon. It was kind of a hard sell to yes. package Lebanon yes. as a story. Okay, okay. Especially for newspapers who always want the regional angle and the and like right. you know the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the global or the regional effects mm-hmm. of, of things that are happening, which yeah. is uh, you can something you can find in Syria coverage every day. Yes. Not so much in Lebanon prior to, to, to October 17. Right. And now this changed. Now we have, and to me this is another thing that I really appreciate is um, getting to do field work once again because yes. um, uh, since coming to uh, Lebanon in, in June 2017, I haven't done much field work. First, because, because of your situ- my situation yeah, yeah, yeah. and also because not much was happening that my employers right, were right. interested in. Yeah. And now it's different. Now I'm back 
on the street, which is what I registered for when I wanted to become a journalist, is right. being on the streets, talking to people and the, hearing from them. Those individual issues still remain, though? Yes, they still remain. Okay. So in a sense, it's just the, for the moment, there's an emotional, um, there's a, there's an emotion that is shared between yourself and the average person on the street. I hope that translates into something else. Because it's nice to see that turn into something more productive. Quite frankly, um, I think I can say that I, before October 17, I never really loved Lebanon. I didn't hate it. Uh, but I didn't uh, go out of my way to love the country. I, for the most part, I did not feel welcome, as we were saying. Yeah. And it's hard to feel not welcome in a place that you, uh, where you sort of found yourself in, um, not not because of your choosing, and um, a place that you you know where you where you ready to do whatever you can yeah. to fix your situation and feel welcome, and right. you're not hostile hostile towards, and you you're working and you're trying to spare no moment. But I never felt welcome, and I always felt discriminated against uh, because of who I am, because of the passport that I carry, and because of my identity. Yeah. And it, it is unfair. And um, I, I think as a as a result, I was never too attached to Lebanon. I don't know if I would have called it home a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I maybe I would have. Maybe I, I wouldn't have. But. When the uprising started, and um, regardless of, of the point of the uprisings and yeah. where I stand, because you know, I'm, I'm, whenever I'm there, I'm there covering, and I'm there as a journalist. But I was going to say maybe that's in a way the benefit of your situation that you don't feel at home, and that maybe doesn't per- that that disallows you from being persuaded in any way. True, yeah. true, and uh, you know, this this revolution is happening and it's historic for uh, for most of the Lebanese people I'm I'm talking to and um, it's not mine of course not as a Syrian not as a journalist but I it's a fact that when you go to certain place and you feel welcome you talk to someone you feel welcome and you don't worry because there no one's going to ask you to present your ID or your passport before they talk to you you're a journalist to them before being. You're a journalist that wants to talk to them and, and convey their voice right. and their concerns yeah. before being a Syrian. And to many others before October 17, I was a Syrian. That is maybe sometimes a, a good thing for some people who belong to certain mm-hmm. groups and a bad thing for many people who belong to other groups. Yeah. Uh. Just to wrap it up, I wanted to sort of take it a step further. And um, in our brief conversations that we've had, I, I've found myself at times oddly explaining my thoughts to you. And I think you have a way of asking certain questions. That it's a reporter's technique, I think, that you just sort of end up getting 10-minute answers. It's not, how's your day going? It's usually, so what is, you know, and I end up trying and I don't want to, but I do it anyway. And in a recent conversation, uh, I just mentioned Samir Asir's name, and I think I, I took it upon myself to send you something about him, a video, a documentary about him. To me, I, and I, I can speak on behalf of many people in my generation, I think he enabled a lot of protesters 
to see through certain prejudices, a left-wing Christian and a French national who wrote in French and Arabic about Hamra's affairs. <laughs> so a very mixed man. Um, and I know that your career is very different than his, and I know that it's also a generational shift. But I think these kinds of voices, they help tear down barriers. And I'm pretty sure that you were doing that already before the revolution. I think uh, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's not that hard to knock that wall down. And I think maybe the revolution made it just a little easier, but it's always there. And I think uh, I feel bad for anyone that didn't enjoy your friendship for prejudice. And if they're changing their minds now, it's, at least it's not too late. But it resonated with me that you felt the other end, which is Lebanese were opening their arms more to someone like you. So, with that, I really thank you for letting me ask you questions in return. It's the first time. First time. <laughs> and uh, I, I look forward to reading more of your articles. And thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.